puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, the less you really do chatters it's no surprise that the elite speak to each other and coded symbolism not meant for mere commoners or non-initiates and we've seen the breadcrumbs of this stretching back centuries sometimes it's in statues and obelisks sometimes it's in the architecture of famous buildings and sometimes it's in the media this doesn't surprise us today but what if many old famous landmarks that we take for granted in modern times actually contain indications that they're connected to a group of royal bloodlines in an inner circle that we haven't heard much about well, when it comes to such legends and landmarks as the Oak Island Money Pit, Renle Chateau, Washington, D.C., Sterling Castle, Roseland Chapel, and the like, as we're going to learn today, this might be the case. Of course, many seekers have sought to unravel the mysteries in these locations, the secret messages and famous paintings, and the hidden meanings of their associated lore, hoping to unearth some hidden Templar or Masonic riches at the end of the proverbial rainbow, like a real-life national treasure situation, but they've all had little luck so far, as far as we know. People, these are the themes in the work of today's long-overdue returning guest, Court Lindahl. Court joined us back in 2014 to talk about his book Axis Mundi, which looked at a particular type of geomancy and building design that aligns certain landmarks across huge portions of the globe, and he's been expanding on that research ever since, having released several new books along the way, such as The Geographic Mysteries of Sir Francis Bacon, The Truth About Oak Island, and more, The Secrets of Edgar Allan Poe, The Kensington Rune and Beale Treasure Revealed, The Use of the Prime Meridian in Talismanic Architecture, Mysteries and Legends in Northern California, The Truth About Mount Shasta and Beyond, and the latest in the series, Oak Island and the Arcadian Mysteries, Oak Island, Renle Chateau, and Sugborough Hall. A Nicolas Cage for the modern age, the main magi of Axis Mundi, and the geographical mystery decoder extraordinaire, Court Lindahl. Welcome back to the Higher Side Chats. Well, thanks for having me, Greg. That was a great intro, and I need not explain anything else. You already did. <laughs> so good job. No, no, it's an interesting subject, and I'm looking forward to chatting with you about it more today. Yeah, man. It is really great to have you back. You are doing some really unique stuff and uncovering more and more details along the way that kind of support your overarching idea, which is probably the best place to start because I find this stuff to be pretty complex if you're not familiar with the names and locations. But when you watch the videos you've made using Google Earth for visual reference, it becomes pretty clear that these sites that we're going to talk about are all set up in relation to each other. And the geometric shapes they form, they're contained in the artwork that's also kept at these places. And it's just pretty fascinating stuff. And then you layer on the lore and the mystique of hidden treasure, and it's even more intriguing. But to kick this off, Let's talk about the overall hypothesis here. To quote the introduction of your latest book, you say the research has led you to information related to Oak Island that solidly links the stories from Sterling Castle, Shugborough Hall, Washington, D.C., 
Chico, California, the Frenchman's Tower of Palo Alto, Rennes-le-Chateau, and Oak Island, Nova Scotia, via the Arcadian theme, a distinct group of families extending from the Old World gentry to the early colonial era seem to have been involved over the entire span of post-medieval history, including the development of the United States and Canada. And that's a big can of worms. So what is the Arcadian theme and who are these people we're talking about? Well, the Arcadian theme links to my navigational concepts. Really what I did when I first started was examine the architecture of Thomas Jefferson, who built three octagonal structures, including Poplar Forest, Monticello, and Barbersville Mansion that he built for the then governor of Virginia, his friend Barber. So all of these things, when you study Thomas Jefferson, it's plain to see he was a great naturalist and scientist, but he was also a trained land surveyor in skills that he picked up while he was a student at the College of William and Mary. And he was later the surveyor general of Albemarle County, where Charlottesville and Monticello were located. And in Williamsburg is the octagonal powder magazine. And as I studied back through time, I found that these structures were kind of a direct reference to the Greek Tower of the Winds in Athens, Greece. That is a kind of ancient timekeeping laboratory. Hmm. It's a small octagonal structure that's oriented to the pole star or true north that actually had sundials on the south-facing facets of the octagon. And it even contained a pressurized water clock, Hmm. which is kind of similar in form or function to the famous Antikythera device that a lot of people are interested in that was found in a shipwreck that showed the movements of the planets. Mm -hmm. This strange geared device that worked also on water pressure. So it's suspected there were other structures throughout the domain of the Greeks at that time. The Tower of the Winds was built anywhere from 50 B.C. to 200 A.D. They're not really sure, but it helped to define for people who ran the empire or the control of the Greek culture in defining time and space in relation to a center point. So this made a kind of crude form of mapping using the Tower of the Winds itself as the center point in a map that would resemble a polar projection. And that's one of the maps that the flat earth (laughs) believers point at to show the flat earth. But really, this type of map does take spherical geometry to produce. But the unique and functional part about it is that when you use that kind of map, you can draw straight lines from the center point leading to other places on the earth without calculating the arc or the curvature. So when you use a center point like that, it's a lot easier to plot locations that are related to it by collecting star logs at other points and comparing them to the central point. So really throughout time, this started out with a lot of spiritual overtones that a Greek cast of priests known as augurs were probably privy to the geometry involved. And this kind of thing gained spiritual overtones after time, if we can imagine a group of robed men out at night setting up posts or stone cairns to sight the pole star that this would look kind of mystical and strange to people who saw them doing it through time you see a lot of these views of this being applied to it by people who really aren't aware of just the practical geometry involved so through time emperor constantine seemed to have a preference for this he built four octagonal structures including 
the palace in Constantinople known as the Daphne had an octagonal room in it that served as his personal quarters and all of the other Byzantine or Roman rulers up until the time of Justinian II lived in this octagon. So there's a lot of evidence that's led me to the assumption that Constantine had built an octagonal structure on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Right. And that his remains may have even been interred there or entombed there below this structure. And more of my research led me to believe that even this is the secret information that we're supposed to see that the Knights Templar discovered during their time there. Because it's really interesting if you look at even the Al-Aqsa Mosque there, that was built by Justinian II, another Byzantine ruler. And there's even sources that say Justinian II was involved in building the Dome of the Rock, which may have really used pieces of the original octagon that Constantine had built there. Because at that time, the Muslim Caliph of Jerusalem was actually paying tribute to Justinian II, and there's records of him sending, quote, artists and engineers there to help in the construction of the Dome of the Rock. And this is really interesting, too, because one of the facets of the Dome of the Rock actually points to St. Peter's Square of the Vatican, where the Egyptian obelisk is. If you create an arc on the globe at that angle, the Vatican actually points back. And we know surrounding the obelisk there are, quote, windrows markers that have compass directions on them. So these two structures actually point to each other on the globe using compass terms and everything. So that's really goes a long way towards backing my theory of Constantine and the Byzantines had some kind of hidden involvement in the construction of the Dome of the Rock. And we see this progressing through history to Ravenna, Italy, where several octagons were built that I believe hold these properties. And then even Charlemagne, uh, the great Frankish and German ruler, the Holy Roman Emperor, built Aachen Cathedral, which the name Aachen even refers to the eight. Yeah. And this was a copy of the Dome of the Rock. And it does indeed have directional qualities, too, just like a lot of the other places. And what's interesting here about Charlemagne is we begin to see the origins of this kind of Rosicrucian man-in-the-mountain mythology, where Charlemagne actually created a mystery as to where his remains were. And I believe he did this in response to being privy to what Constantine had done. If you look into Constantine... Nobody's really sure where Constantine is buried. You know, many people speculate that he was entombed at the Church of the Holy Apostles in Constantinople, or what is today Istanbul, but there's no definite proof of that either. And he originally built what is known as the Mausoleum of St. Helena in Rome for himself to be entombed in. When his mother passed away, he had her buried there. So he wasn't even entombed in the structure he had built and designed for himself, which does have octagonal qualities. And really later, quote, Templar churches are all based on the design of the Mausoleum of St. Helena in Rome. So this leads to some of the conspiracy theories that later Byzantine rulers engaged in a kind of quest to find Constantine's remains and the fact that Byzantine rulers were engaged in building structures on the Temple Mount may indicate that my theory is true, that he actually at one time was entombed there. 
And his legend, along with Charlemagne's, later influenced what we know of today as Rosicrucian philosophy, in that the central tenet of Rosicrucianism is the fact that Christian Rosenkreutz is entombed in a seven-sided chamber that takes kind of a mystery to solve where he is. So there's records of at least four subsequent Holy Roman, German, and Frankish emperors opening Charlemagne's vault. The first one to do so, Otto I, actually finding the coronation gospels and other, quote, secret manuscripts entombed with Charlemagne. And the coronation gospels, of course, are the book where all German kings, when they were coronated, that Bible was used. So that's an interesting link to the whole cultural phenomena and the nationalist ideals of an emperor or empire or later what would even be used in countries like the United States to kind of show a national character. And this will be later that we'll discuss in literature and visual art as well. This was all expressed to kind of give people clues as to what was going on. Through time, this later became a Masonic concept where even people could use the central points, such as the Tower of the Winds, Aachen Cathedral, the Powder Magazine in Williamsburg, or the Newport Tower in Rhode Island even, as a center point of a mystery that was intentionally contrived for specific people to learn their way through the clues, in turn also leading to all of these myths and legends of hidden treasures in association. Mm -hmm. I mean, even later during the Civil War, we see the Knights of the Golden Circle stashing valuables for their intelligence assets, using clues and symbols carved on trees and rocks to lead somebody to caches of weapons and valuables that could be used. And even in the schemes they used, they used octagonal forms and templates to achieve this. So it's a tradition we can see through time that can be applied to many of these geographic landscape mysteries, I term them. This is where the theme of Arcus comes in, or Arcadia. Exactly. Uh, And this is a great overview so far, especially, you know, that Constantine Temple Mount Dome of the Rock connection. That has major religious implications. That was something we focused on a lot last time, but that is a pretty bold claim that a lot of people are going to be upset by, or certain feathers would be ruffled by, of course. So basically, there are many sites that are included in this network of connected alignments, or many different groups who have used this method of aligning things. And on the topic of mysteries and Arcadia, Let's talk about Oak Island and the legendary money pit in Nova Scotia. Sure. For people who might not be super familiar, the story goes that three men saw some strange lights in the sky that led them to an indention in the ground with the ropes and pulleys of a ship hanging from a tree above. They decided to dig and uncovered an engraved stone that talked about a treasure below that. But as you dig, the pit is rigged to flood itself, and people have been digging out these layers of material for more than 200 years, I guess, and nothing seems to have ever been found. The pit keeps filling in, and the rub is, like we've talked about with other guests in different situations, the story was written in a book many years before the money pit was ever found that also connects it to this Arcadian theme, right? Correct, and that's a great point because really what started to tip me off to the importance of Arcadia is I noticed these three 
different places of mystery, Sterling Castle, Shugborough Hall, and Rainless Chateau, that all incorporated the Arcadian theme as part of the mystery there. The land around Sterling Castle was once referred to as Arcadia, which the original Arcadia is a province of Greece on the Peloponnesian Peninsula that was named for the mythological character Arcus. That's also where the word arc on the globe comes from. Hmm. Archaeology, anything that has a time-based or spatial-based reference uses that prefix in many cases. So Arcus, through a series of events, he and his mother were cast into the sky as the constellations Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, with Arcus being Ursa Minor, and the tale of Ursa Minor is the Pole Star. Hmm. So here we see a veiled reference to using the pole star as astronomers and astrologers do to fix other angles and distances on the globe with relation to true north. And just like when astronomers create a position to view the stars from, the first thing they do is to create a meridian or a north to south line that they can now measure other angles from of other celestial bodies. And of course, this leads us to the art of navigation or finding your way on the globe or plotting places in relation to each other on the globe. So that's why the Arcadian theme, every time you're seeing a mystery that mentions this, you're being tipped off that there's a structure or point on Earth that you use to measure from to find clues that help you to solve the mystery. Of course, Oak Island is located in what was known as French Acadia, and this is the name where even Cajuns in Louisiana get their name from because they were exiled from Arcadia at the time in the back and forth of the English and French fought over and traded control of what is Nova Scotia today and Maine several times. So what I found when I was looking into this, I looked into Shugborough Hall which was famous for the Shepherd's Monument there. And there's your Arcadian reference because the Shepherd's Monument has a bas-relief rendering of Nicola Poussin's painting, The Shepherds of Arcadia, on it. And as I searched into that, I began to believe that this monument was a memento mori for the beheaded King Charles I of England. And indeed, Charles's last words were from a book entitled Arcadia, by a man named Philip Sidney. So Charles I quoted a passage called Pamela's Prayer from Arcadia as his last words before he was beheaded. At this point, I'm sitting there scratching my head a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wondering what's going on because I see this Arcadian theme also being part of the Oak Island treasure mystery. And lo and behold, I was astounded as I looked into that book more First of all, I found a passage in the book that really tells the same story that you did of how three young men found the money pit. There's one character named Doris that wants to escape with Miss Pamela, but she has a servant assigned to watch and make sure this doesn't happen. So Doris sends the servant off on a fool's errand to find this treasure when the man gets there, it's a depression in the ground situated beneath an oak tree with flagstones just under the top of the dirt. Some of the descriptions of it are like he couldn't wait to find his golden acorns 
and it describes him digging down through this depression where somebody else had already dug it up before and removing, quote, logs and rocks as he proceeds and traces of where pieces of gold and silver used to be in the dirt he describes and everything. But when he reaches the bottom of the pit, there's an engraven stone there that's just like the 90-foot stone described in the Oak Island treasure legend that had an encoded message on it. So he finds there also a box with some poetry in it that seemingly is warning one that you were sent on a fool's errand. So after a long time, the servant removes the stone even because he suspects that there's a tomb or vault beneath it. When he removes the stone, he finds another piece of parchment with a poem on it that does indeed inform him that he was just sent on this errand to find this lost treasure while Doris escaped with Miss Pamela. Hmm. (laughs) So at that point, I'm like, wow, this book has what seems to be the original Oak Island story in it. And it has these references to Charles I, his last words, and another Arcadian mystery at Shugborough Hall. So as I looked even more into the book, I discovered that the book had been amended at around 1618 by a man named William Alexander, who was the first Earl of Sterling and the first Baron of Nova Scotia. So the first Scottish Baron of Nova Scotia, who had been appointed by King James I, who was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, as being the Baron of Nova Scotia, who actually edited and amended the book Arcadia, which does refer to French Arcadia, or the French pronounce it Acadia, not Arcadia, but it means the same thing. So there's too many coincidences here (laughs) building up in association with this piece of literature that was published over 200 years prior to the three young men discovering the money pit and the modern story of the money pit as we see it unfolding. So really what this is showing us is that there's a lot more going on there that the Alexander family may have even been involved in creating the money pit, whether it's real or not, whether there's a real treasure in it or not, and what may be in it. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of variables that these treasures could even include relics or personal belongings or in a long shot, even body parts of these beheaded Scottish kings of England. Yes. Because over time we see... They had big disputes with the parliamentarian government of England where they were still Catholic and this was not kosher, I shouldn't say, (laughs) (laughs) at that time. So that was part of Charles I's problems in why he was beheaded. And then later Charles II, after the English Civil War was brought back and he continued to have the same issues up until the time of James II, James III, and Bonnie Prince Charlie, which is starting to lead us into the time of the American Revolution. But even long before that, just before the time Philip Sidney wrote Arcadia, Mary Queen of Scots was beheaded for very similar reasons because she was kind of a threat to Queen Elizabeth I because she had a more legitimate claim via blood to the throne, which she had given up because she was queen to France at one point. And then lost that, came to assume the royal titles of Scotland, 
and then was caught plotting against Queen Elizabeth to take the whole enchilada for herself. (laughs) (laughs) So she had a lot of issues like that, too, and was eventually beheaded for very similar reasons to Charles I. And this is some of the connections we start to see with these relics that may have come from Mary, Queen of Scots, who had a collection of biblical relics, including at one time she had the head of St. Margaret or Queen Margaret of Scotland, who was made a saint. So she had her skull, other body parts of other saints and other biblical relics. And after she was beheaded, this is amazing, a man named Robert Beale was her personal liaison between her and Queen Elizabeth more than likely ended up with all of these items. And this may lead us later to the Beale treasure in Virginia. So a lot of these things have connections all the way back in time via people like Philip Sidney's nephew, the man who wrote Arcadia, served the same position with Charles I and his liaison with the parliament at that time who beheaded him. And Philip Herbert, who was Philip Sidney's nephew, likely ended up with all of his personal belongings at that time. (laughs) And this included a copy of Arcadia and a copy of the first folio of Shakespeare. Boom. Which amazingly, Philip Herbert, the man who ended up with these items, and his brother, William Herbert, are the subjects of the dedication of that book. Wow. So let me jump in here because just so far we've talked a lot about headlessness and beheading and not being sure where Constantine is buried. There's this trend of hiding these bodies, of digging up skulls, of having skulls. Mary, Queen of Scots, said to have the head of St. Margaret that she used as a talisman. It's kind of weird. And, uh, you know, the Knights Templar also uh, all over this sort of stuff. And they apparently kept the head of John the Baptist that they were channeling through. You hear rumors that Skull and Bones digs up the bodies of famous people and uses their bones in ritual. It's a pretty pervasive theme. And it makes you wonder, these people are capable of understanding some pretty deep concepts. Maybe they have some belief that you control the skull, you control the spirit in the astral plane or something. There is some kind of magical belief, at least, around skulls and bodies because people in this club, so to speak, seem to go to great lengths to hide where they're buried. And other people seem to go to great lengths to possess the skulls of important people. Very strange. I agree with you. It's You know, a good example is Skull and Bones. That's a very popular one that everybody points to. And I think some Blue Lodge Basonic rituals and things that they do that skulls are used in a fashion where you're meant to contemplate your mortality just by being exposed to this symbol of death. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of the same purpose of the famous Skull and Crossbones pirate flag that when you see the pirate ship and they run up the Jolly Roger, it's time to start contemplating your mortality. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, do you really want to go down this road or do you want to just turn the other way? (laughs) Exactly, and that links me to a really cool story about the head of Blackbeard the Pirate in Williamsburg, Virginia, because he was active at this time right around when Governor Spotswood was governor in the early part of the 1700s. And of course, the story goes there is when they captured him, he was beheaded immediately and they took his head and put it on a pike at the entrance to Hampton Harbor in Hampton, Virginia. 
Jeez. And it stayed there for about three years until it was just a skull. And they took it down and fashioned it into the base of a silver punch bowl. <laughs> and this sounds like a crazy story, but there's lots of documented sightings of it. It hasn't been seen since the 1920s. But there's lots of accounts of people viewing it and even drinking punch from the bowl. And this was said to be at the Raleigh Tavern in Williamsburg at the time Thomas Jefferson was a student there and George Washington and James Madison and all of these future heavyweights in American history. This was such a normal thing that they didn't even think twice about making a punch bowl out of a pirate's head. <laughs> Man, different times. <laughs> so it's a trend there. You're right. The way you broke it down was great. In fact, in a lot of these mysteries, as we go along, there's a distinct funerary overtone with messages being hidden on gravestones and in books of symbols as memento mori for people who had passed away and everything. So part of these mysteries and initiatory quests are, this also speaks to some of these, I've suspected, don't even have real treasures associated with them. Because when you start delving into a specific mystery, in Oak Island, for example, here I found the whole history of Sir William Alexander, the first baron of Nova Scotia. He's even one of the many people suspect either helped in the production of Shakespeare or produced it himself because he was a famous writer and poet as well as Philip Sidney was. I mean, Philip Sidney and his sister, Mary Sidney Herbert, the Countess of Pembroke, who was the mother of Philip and William, who I mentioned earlier, was the head of the Wilton Writers Circle. Right. So throughout time, you also see these writers and artists expressing themselves in kind of metaphor and allegory that just hints at what's going on. And sometimes, indeed, does presage or tell the future of actual events that later happen even. Mm -hmm. So all of that is involved with the funerary aspects, which we see at the first three Arcadian mysteries, I call them, that I identified at Sterling. There's a headstone there called the Service Stone that has symbols on it from a book of symbols called Coral's Book of Symbols that is really interesting. There's the Jerusalem Stone Pyramid there at Sterling that resembles the steep-sided pyramid on the United States $1 bill. And if you follow all that back, too, it's entirely possible that all these kind of symbols that we see that are usually attributed to Freemasonry also are associated with these famous Scottish families prior to the time that Freemasonry even existed. And in some cases, even the Catholic Church valued these. There's two steep-sided pyramids similar to the one at Stirling Castle in Rome that were built in antiquity. The death's head use in funerary places or cemeteries by the church is not uncommon, as are the pyramid with the all-seeing eye. And I think at about the time we see Freemasonry starting to use and adapt these symbols, we see the church beginning not to use them. Mm -hmm. I mean, even at the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela and Aachen Cathedral, which I spoke of before, have the pyramid and the all-seeing eye as part of the artwork in the cathedrals. Right. And, you know, in the case of Oak Island, it's funny that Arcadia describes this similar story. And then in the end, it's a box of poetry because some people do talk about other works of Shakespeare being buried there. And that's interesting because if you were Shakespeare 
And you, at that time, you wouldn't care. Like, you'd be like, I'm just burying a poem that is, to me, kind of like arbitrary compared to what people would want to find. Now we would consider that probably just as important, if not more, than an actual treasure, which is just kind of ironic. But it would be funny if, in the real case, the story follows suit all the way through to being a box of poetry. But another thing I wanted to mention was the fact that Apparently, Arcadia, the book, was important to the intelligence circles of Queen Elizabeth, which does suggest that it's possibly propaganda or has a hidden meaning. And I think that is really interesting. Today, like we have all these highly refined situations of propaganda and the media is constantly giving us distractions. And the conspiracy world is often injected with over-the-top fantasy from paid infiltrators, which obscures real information. Sure. And the contention here is that this has been going on for centuries, and originally it was happening in these writing guilds sanctioned from royalty, which would encode their own subtext, but write these stories largely to entrance and distract the masses. And in the case of these older sites and mysteries, that would be the Wilton's writing circle. But this is also where I wanted to bring up Edgar Allan Poe, because you write about his connections in a couple of chapters and how he also mirrored the Oak Island mystery in his work, The Gold Bug. And it's funny because typically we think of these figures as just talented people who are successful with their art. But in recent years, a lot of conspiratorial researchers have been examining figures from 60s culture, music, the beatnik poetry scene, Hollywood actors. And they're pointing out a lot of political and military intelligence connections that make you wonder how many of these people are plants whose work is supposed to serve a certain purpose that might have started with these sorts of state-sponsored writer's skills that you're talking about. And Poe might have actually been a member of one of these later that you call the Cincinnati Group. Is that right? Yes. And really, you mentioned the Wilton Writers Group which is one of the earlier influential ones with this whole group of writers. Everybody speculates actually wrote Shakespeare if it wasn't him himself. Also, at the time prior to Charles I beheading, the Vatican formed a literary guild called the Academy of Arcadia, hmm. <laughs> which was composed of poets, visual artists, and even Niccolo Poussin, though he created his painting, The Shepherds of Arcadia, prior to that was later said to be a member of that artist's guild. We all know that he was educated in part by Athenaeus Kircher, who's a famous Jesuit scientist, code maker, and historian. So he had some connections right there to what may be considered an intelligence service as well. So throughout time, we do see this tradition of that. We see People like Thomas Jefferson, who's known to be involved in the intelligence services of the early United States, having an extensive art collection that includes a portrait of Sir Francis Bacon, who was one of his three most admired people. He had a portrait of the Magdalene Pentonet holding the skull, Mary Magdalene in the skull, which is emblematic and was even a piece of art very similar to that as part of the illustrations in the early edition of Edgar Allan Poe's The Gold Bug. And The Gold Bug is really interesting in there. If you look at that after having studied a great deal about Thomas Jefferson, you can see that the main character in The Gold Bug, his name is Legrand. And Legrand, the architect, is who inspired Thomas Jefferson to create the oval-shaped dome of Monticello. And he was known to be 
one of Thomas Jefferson's favorite architects. And we go on to see the character Legrand is a highly intellectual person in the gold bug who's a naturalist, a scientist of the day, and he has a freed slave servant named Jupiter. And Thomas Jefferson also had a personal servant named Jupiter. And we see Edgar Allan Poe attended the University of Virginia while Thomas Jefferson was still alive and known to meet with exceptional students. That at this time, we start to see this pattern in Poe's life that could paint him as being a spy. Yeah. In tandem with his membership in the Society of the Cincinnati, which is a group composed of Revolutionary War officers and one of their male lineal descendants, which would have qualified people like Edgar Allan Poe, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, James Fenimore Cooper, Samuel Morse, Emerson, a lot of really famous names in this mid-19th century era of American literature in which America is starting to gain a national identity via the writings of these people, like Drums Along the Mohawk from Cooper, Longfellow writing of all his Norse heritage in association with American history that became a political football later that may have been done to promote at that time what was considered a false notion of the Norse having built the Newport Tower and things like that. But Poe in the Goldbug, it's interesting because as the story progresses, there's an encoded thing that is deciphered and Legrand ends up finding a treasure beneath the skull hanging from the branch of a tree. And a lot of this imagery leads us both to Rain-le-Chateau and Oak Island. For instance, in The Gold Bug, one of the opening lines of the book is, take your bearing from a shot in the devil's seat to the bishop's house or something to that effect. Hmm. And for anybody that is a fan of the Rain-le-Chateau mystery, they know about the devil's seat in rain le ban nearby, which are the old Roman baths that is supposed to be part of the mystery, which is the stone-carved chair there known as the devil's seat. So it's interesting that Poe's referring to things like this in that the only conclusion be that he at least heard that story before and incorporated it into this fictional work for other people to recognize somehow beyond it just being a good story. That's a pretty obscure reference to another mystery that wasn't even exposed until after Poe was dead. Yeah. So that was interesting. And the story of the gold bug. See, this is what always happens when I talk about the geography part of all of this. <laughs> I'll define all of these relationships and everything. And I'll look, well, how can I relate Rain-le-Chateau and Sullivan's Island, Georgia, where the gold bug takes place on the map? And we know at Rain-le-Chateau, Researcher Henry Lincoln identified this big pentagram using landmarks near Rain-le-Chateau, including the chapel, Chateau Blanchefort, the fortress of Bezoux, and others to create this giant pentagram in the landscape. Now, if you take the pentagram and connect the tips of it, you get a pentagon. Mm -hmm. One of the lines from that pentagon, if changed to an arc on the globe, points directly to Sullivan's Island, South Carolina. <laughs> wow. So is that just chance or is this some sort of arranged part of the whole mystery? And sure as heck, as I researched even more, 
I found this obscure letter, which is, of course, disputed by many people, that was written by Alexander Dumas, who wrote The Three Musketeers and Man in the Iron Mask and other famous books that we've all heard of. Edgar Allan Poe actually came to visit him and stayed with him for six months in France. Hmm. And it was interesting because Dumas had written this letter to an Italian police official as part of his search for the temple treasure that had been sacked, of course, from the Temple Mount and brought to the Temple of Peace of Rome. And then when the Visigoths and Ostrogoths invaded, it was never seen again. So he was searching for that. And really, we know a lot of people believe that that treasure is hidden somewhere around Raiden Le Chateau. That's one of the theories about what's going on there. And that does have a lot of historical background, and that was the region of Septimania that was actually ruled by the Ostrogothic king who helped to create Ravenna, Italy. Theodoric the Great, his daughter married into the Visigoths, who had the Merovingian blood there, leading us to the blood of Christ and all of those kind of concepts as well. Mm -hmm. So it isn't just a fanciful shot in the dark that this treasure could be in the area. There's real historical reasons for it. And that's why having known all of that, when I started to look at Poe and Longfellow and everything, I found all of these connections as if they were actually investigating the truth of these things for intelligence gathering purposes. We see that along with the beheaded kings are the exiled monarchies that are associated with them. And these groups of people seemingly continued to operate for various amounts of times as if they were countries that had actually no physical land associated with them. Ah. That through them and their associates, all of the people that had benefited from them being the monarchs before all of their military contractors of the day, <laughs> hangers-on, business owners that worked with their regime would actually continue to take part in this kind of what people term a shadow government today. Wow. And indeed, we will see that the exiled monarchy I was speaking of before of James II, James III, and Bonnie Prince Charlie starting at the turn of the 1600s to the 1700s, leading all the way up to the Revolutionary War, was influenced by this group of exiled kings of England who actually wanted to come to North America and begin a republic of their own because they felt as a family right that their families were in control when Jamestown was started, when the Massachusetts Bay Colony was started. So they felt they owned it, not parliamentary England or the new kings that they brought in from Germany. So we see this factor being part of American history all the way up until the point after the Revolutionary War, there was even a serious movement to make Bonnie Prince Charlie the king of America. Hmm. There were actually bills presented in Congress that were defeated due in no small part to Thomas Jefferson's opposition to them that, no, we're not having a king. <laughs> That's just against the grain of the more rational, quote, enlightened portion of people that perpetrated the American Revolution along with their French allies, which is interesting, too, because Bonnie Prince Charlie was related to all of the French people that helped us in the revolution as well. <laughs> 
it's really more of a complex story than what you're told in your average history book. If you start to read between the lines and see where the money came from to help fund the revolution and indeed incidents like them trying to make Bonnie Prince Charlie the king of America later, that all of these things are a byproduct and are related to these strange treasure mysteries like we see at Oak Island, which may have been stashed there with some sort of loot to help fund the American Revolution. Or even Bonnie Prince Charlie, at first I believe they wanted to take over Nova Scotia and make it a republic country of their own, of New Scotland. And this eventually morphed into the entire Republic of the United States of America. And it's really compelling that the William Alexander, the Baron of Nova Scotia, who amended Philip Sidney's Arcadia, his direct descendants are the namesake of Alexandria, Virginia. And they owned most of the property that would become the original 10-mile-shaped diamond boundaries of Washington, D.C. When We know Washington, D.C. is smaller today, but originally it was a 10-mile-sided square rotated 45 degrees to form a diamond, with Alexandria being right at the southern tip. (laughs) And in the Continental Army, during the Revolutionary War, we see General William Alexander, who is the direct descent of the Baron of Nova Scotia, Sir William Alexander. And, you know, you had also mentioned in one of your videos that part of the Washington Monument is actually modeled after part of the Library of Alexandria, which might connect. That's a provocative, mystical place, but who knows how far back this kind of stuff goes. Oh, certainly. That's the George Washington Masonic Memorial in Alexandria. That's different than the Washington Monument at the National Mall. Gotcha. But yeah, that's definitely patterned after the Lighthouse of Alexandria. That's an interesting structure because it aligns with King Street, the whole square block layout of Alexandria. They built it so it was oriented with that. But they also built the George Washington Masonic Memorial due south of the Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C., which serves as the Axis Mundi of Washington, D.C., if not the entire United States. (laughs) It's exactly due south of that. And the Naval Observatory is interesting because it's an astronomical observatory that is actually patterned after Shugborough Hall in England. It looks very similar to the building there at Shugborough Hall. And this defines a prime meridian. We refer to, or all U.S. naval ships at sea refer to for their time bearings. So it's interesting that they also built the George Washington Masonic Memorial right on this meridian where it is also aligning with the streets of Alexandria. And what I also found that was really mind-blowing is the orientation of the structure from plan view itself. If you create the arc that goes along the way it points to the south, it points directly to Mount Vernon, which is George Washington's estate. Hmm. So we kind of see how these things are set up like this to kind of lead you on a path of realization as to what's going on and even what it's for and why they might orient these things or place them in certain positions like that. Right. It's just so amazing. And you have to restore so much context to do the work you do, but you make it quite clear. And 
When it comes to cryptic information encoded into fiction from authors who might have had connections to mystery school, sacred information, if you want to get real weird with it, the hollow earth or the inner earth could be one of these possible themes. To relate it to, a, you know, this is a tangent, but to relate it back to the main topics here, I was looking further into Edgar Allan Poe because of all these connections you found with him and his family. And he too wrote about the hollow earth because the climax of his novel the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. In that, he stages some of the main scenes at the South Polar opening, as it would be described by the Hollow Earth model. And I just thought that was interesting. Could be another example. I just like the way some things tie into the Hollow Earth lore in general. But the other day we got to talking, and I was saying how intrigued I was by this stuff. And you were saying that it's actually wrapped up in this quite a bit because a lot of these secret orders were big into Enochian concepts and the Enochian model is a nine-chambered earth. It's part of the Rosicrucian system. And to tie it back to Oak Island, this nine-chambered earth model is possibly why there are nine levels to the Oak Island layers of log in the money pit and also maybe nine levels of the Royal Arch degree of Freemasonry. So Maybe all these nines are related and that inner earth lore is a little bit tied up in this. I think you're right. That's entirely possible because of all of these allusions to the underworld and even going back to Nova Scotia. Let me mention real quick that the general William Alexander we were discussing before, who was descendant of the Baron of Nova Scotia prior to the war, actually returned to Scotland and was awarded the title the Earl of Stirling by the Scots peerage, but this was turned down by British Parliament for obvious reasons, because after the war, if he had been awarded this, then Nova Scotia would be part of the United States. But yes, the theme of the hollow earth and emerging from the underworld is kind of part of these things all the way back to the myths of Constantine and Charlemagne and these kind of quest legends that they develop these man-in-the-mountain myths. You can search that term and you'll see lots of stories pop up that are related to the man-in-the-mountain and the tales of how people search for relics and everything associated with all of these. So that's been a tradition for a very long time as well. Going all the way back into the Greek culture, there's two interesting examples of it. In Egypt, too, there's supposed to be a missing labyrinth somewhere on the Giza Plateau that occasionally we see stories popping up about. But this is interesting, the whole symbol of the labyrinth and the story of Theseus and the Minotaur, how Theseus goes into the labyrinth to save the children and leaves a trail of yarn behind him. And in this, the ball of yarn is known as a clue, C-L-E-W-E, and that's where the word clue comes from. So he's leaving himself a clue as to how to escape after he gets lost looking and battles the Minotaur. We all know that he wins and everything eventually. But really what you're being told there is that anytime you see a labyrinth or a reference to these underground facilities, that there's a mystery afoot because you're being given a clue. <laughs> I love it. That's my interpretation. But every time I see this, it seems to be true. <laughs> it seems to work out. I mean, I haven't read that anywhere, but the way I look at the symbology and everything, it leads me to believe that's part of it. And then really another ancient Greek practice was the mysteries of Lucius, 
in which all the participants would swear never to reveal what would happen in this big enclosed area after they were initiated. But we do know part of these initiations or ceremonies or part of going to solve the mysteries of Eleusis is going into an underground passageway after being dosed with what many people speculate was hallucinogenic honey. Right. So these people are now having a psychedelic experience led through the underground to get a clue (laughs) (laughs) or experience whatever kind of things they do when they're on psychedelic drugs in a cave, you know, (laughs) and then they emerge into the sunlight, into this enclosed area where everybody has food and drink and they're welcomed and the more stressful part of the initiation is over. But we see through time that all these underground chambers also, as you pointed out, reference the book of Enoch and the nine chambers, one on top of each other that later became a Masonic tenet or part of the initiation into the Royal Arch degree, something that they're aware of, of which there's nine degrees. So it is interesting that there were nine layers of logs in the money pit that in legend were said to be removed. Unfortunately, we don't know all of this for sure. It's all been a story that's told to us. At the point on the ninth level, they found the stone that resembles the stone in the book Arcadia that no one's ever seen either. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, there's only drawings of that. There's lots of eyewitness accounts of it being seen, but the stone is missing. You know, a lot of people that are obsessed with the Oak Island treasure are first wanting to find this stone to prove it's real and to prove the decoding of it that said there's treasure 50 feet below or something like that of 2 million pounds worth of gold. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, on the higher side chats, we're always on a stone quest, so to speak. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, California style, right on. Yes. <laughs> well, another thing I was going to say is when we were talking the other day, I had mentioned how we have the book, The Titan, an unsinkable ship that hits an iceberg and sinks, which came out, I think, 10 to 20 years before the Titanic situation. And then we have Arcadia come out first and describe this real life Oak Island money pit. And one other thing we discussed about the hollow earth is Jules Verne wrote Journey to the Center of the Earth in a similar climate to a degree, right? Sure. And that leads us to really a very, very interesting person whose name pops up all the time, Alexander von Humboldt, who was personal friends with Thomas Jefferson and had a correspondence with him. Yes. It's really interesting that von Humboldt was one of the first Western scholars not of the Catholic Church to examine the Aztec sunstone. And he wrote his description of it the way it really worked, and he nailed it, and this was in 1803. Hmm. His description of it is interesting, too, because it sounds almost like a person who uses New Age terminology today to describe what it was going on, but he was already aware that it described different epochs of time. He had it all divided up into what they represented. And so on that same trip, he visited President Jefferson in Washington, D.C., and then interestingly, right in the middle of the 19th century, about 25 years after Thomas Jefferson passed away, we see a rendering of the Aztec sunstone being added to the rotunda of the United States Capitol building. Hmm. So Alexander von Humboldt is really well-respected and revered in Masonic circles and scientific circles. There's places named for him 
all over the country, the Humboldt current, Humboldt counties in Nevada and California. There's statues of him in other linear arrays of architecture that resemble the National Mall in St. Louis and other places. But with regard to the hollow earth, early in his career, Alexander von Humboldt speculated that there were hollows at the poles of the earth because of the way the magnetosphere behaved. Hmm. So part of his theory dictated that there would have to be great hollows. He didn't suppose that the entire earth was hollow, but there were these giant declavities or cavern-like features at each pole. And this later led to the craze of people beginning to speculate about this in the mid-19th century, the Sims expedition, where this American colonel in the military tried to arrange an expedition to the North Pole to find the hollow earth. Mm -hmm. And this is, as you stated, right at around the same time Jules Verne wrote about all this in fiction, even after a practical scientist like von Humboldt had already speculated this to be true. So it's interesting that as we go along, we even see lots of connections between Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and what's going on at the Newport Tower, how a lot of people believe the Newport Tower is of Norse origins. But as I researched Longfellow, I found that he was part of this group of what's known as the Norwegian Romantic Nationalist Movement that was actually promoting all of these concepts that the Vikings had built the Newport Tower, later leading us to the Kensington Runestone. This is in an era of history prior to them even knowing that Lansall Meadows Viking site in Newfoundland even existed. Hmm. But what they did know from the Norse sagas that there had been a settlement somewhere. So these men kept trying to say it was in where Boston was today. For their own political reasons, some of them slightly racist <laughs> and not giving Columbus credit, wanting to believe Scandinavian people had actually lived in New England before. But what I found was that in Longfellow's personal notes, he was speculating about how to promote this idea before they even had proof of it, or before even his friend, Christian Raffin, had wrote this in an academic manner. He was even close friends with the first man to write this up as a serious speculation from an anthropologist or historian. And he was also friends with the man named Ole Bull, and that's spelled like Ole Bull. So that's kind of mm -hmm. <laughs> a good sense of humor, who was a famous Norwegian violinist who even tried to start a Norwegian colony in Pennsylvania in the mid-19th century at the time of Longfellow and when Poe were alive as well. So he had all of these connections to people who actually, for their own reasons, were promoting these things, and it belays his real belief in the Newport Tower being Norse because he was scheming to come up with a way to make people believe this before anyone even speculated that was true before. So, yes, people like Poe. Poe is really interesting, too. He has a few works, one of them known as Eureka, which is totally enigmatic. People insist there's codes in it and everything, where he even writes about Sir Francis Bacon time-based vortexes yeah. and things like that that lead us into the late 19th century and early 20th century views that a lot of people had, like Jean Cocteau, 
Nicholas Rorick and Manley P. Hall, that these places actually had time-based vortexes associated with them in which they could, quote, travel back in time. Yeah, I love exploring that idea that these writers who are just connected to secret societies have parsed out some of these ideas in their works or in the legends. And that time vortex one is another one. It's, I guess, related to themes like ley lines and the concept of an energy grid. But this possibility of, I guess, maybe today we'd call it multidimensional space or something outside of time, but secret locations that are just off the map. Sure. And really, one way you could look at it, I'm not disputing those things are possible. Once you expose yourself to all of these historical concepts in depth with regard to these people and try to follow the initiation out a little bit, Mm -hmm. you have entered a figurative other dimension. Ah. Because this information that you learned has now changed your whole view of the world in many ways. Fair. Now, this is the way things really work. You are in a not literal, but figurative, different dimension (laughs) (laughs) of time, you know, the kind of science fiction view of it where you actually travel back in time. I haven't found any accounts that 100% say that's true. It's all inferred and kind of embellished through these writers and the way they presented it in their work as well. I'm not saying that's not possible. But once you're initiated, it does change you. Not that I have been, but I can see where if you were initiated into solving these mysteries and you finally followed them out to the end, that your point of view has changed in many ways that does speak to a dimension. Yeah. And to talk about these things showing up in more modern films, same kind of parallels with just filmmakers who might be connected When we were talking before, you mentioned Roman Polanski's The Ninth Gate, which is pretty on the nose for what we were talking about earlier. But then Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris, which really is about a time vortex to a bar outside of time where famous authors and artists from the past who would be probably initiated are hanging out. Right. And of course, both of these directors have those unsavory preferences for children, too. But maybe that's just a coincidence. But this sort of thing... Privileged artists using material from the mysteries, apparently it's still going on. I think you're right. The Ninth Gate in particular, when I saw it, I mentioned earlier this mystery at Sterling Castle where the Book of Symbols, they use symbols from this book with poetry in it and certain symbols and each page is a little mystery in and of its own. Hmm. And that's kind of what they're showing you in the movie these missing pages that they were finding in different editions of the book had different etchings in it. So I was amazed to find that still another book of symbols is used in a mystery in Williamsburg, Virginia, with symbols on headstones at the Bruton Parish Churchyard, where another Bacon's vault is supposed to be hidden. Mm. (laughs) So it's another similar story to the one that some people think is going on at Oak Island or other places with a vault of Sir Francis Bacon's papers stashed away. So I was amazed to see that concept being used in a movie like that. In The Ninth Gate, it's kind of interesting that they show the more modern sect of it that resembles Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. In the movie, The Ninth Gate, they depicted them as being a bunch of bumbling amateurs. (laughs) (laughs) They really weren't initiating themselves that they had got lost on this sidetrack of BS in leading them to whatever the true meaning of the symbols in the book were. 
which we saw how that worked out at the end. I won't ruin it for everybody. But <laughs> And Midnight in Paris really blew my mind because it closely resembles the work of a woman named Patrice Chaplin. And she was once married to the son of Charlie Chaplin, the famous actor. Ah. And she had an experience as a young lady in this city in Catalonia, probably about 80 or 90 kilometers south of Rain-le-Chateau, in which she insisted she even saw that Father Saunier had visited there. She saw Jean Cocteau there. There was a Torre Magdala there, just like there's the Torre Magdala at Rain-le-Chateau. And she describes the time travel portion of this in association with what she experienced as a young person and just witnessed. She didn't take part in it or anything. But after having read her work, and then seeing Midnight in Paris, it was obvious that they were talking about the same thing. There was a belief at this early time during the era of Manly P. Hall, which is really interesting because his wife was the first one to expose this mystery in Williamsburg that I was telling you of that used a book of symbols. Mm -hmm. These kind of things were in vogue. Somebody was likely aware of this from the time these things were actually used, that this information is passed down, whether through family members or some sort of organization similar to Freemasonry. A lot of these wealthier royal and elite families do have family fraternities that work like secret societies where only members of their family are involved. And you do see that manifesting themselves like a part of these arrays of architecture like the National Mall and the International Peace Garden or the Axe Historique of Paris are places where all the offices of the state are arranged in a line with, and even the major business districts of the cities in which they're located. So a lot of this is centered around, you know, if I locate my business here, other people will recognize I'm in the know. Or it's just maybe they do believe in power like remote viewing or that there's some sort of energy from back to the Greek and Roman times where that may have originated, that there is a belief like that similar to astrology and beliefs people have in mysticism and everything that would lead people to believe that this is a good place that blesses their enterprise and a good place to be and also displays your knowledge that this is what's going on and this is the way it works. Mm-hmm. I think corporate logos are another way to express that a little bit. Sure. Of course, not as many people read anymore. Back in the 17th and 18th century, the average person was a little more literate. Today, that same person would probably be looking at the internet more, listening to music more, and watching movies mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as opposed to reading. So all of these symbolic aspects have now been transferred over to those medias and not so much writing anymore, though it's still there. If you look at somebody like Dan Brown, it's amazing. I never read any of his books before I started doing this, but every one of them involves a quest where the clues are followed to a certain end that was predetermined and designed, like in the Da Vinci Code, for instance. Right. It is there, and he was smart enough to have figured this out and presented it in an entertaining way. Hmm. Wow, man. Well, you are just a wealth of information. That pretty much brings us to the finish line. An amazing body of work. It requires the restoration of so much context. It is very impressive. 
And you also do a lot of video presentations, a lot more writing on the blog. Tell people to dig further into the stuff you got going on or what's going to be your next work. Well, sure. Yeah. Please look at the videos because that helps you to visualize the alignments that I'm talking about in the book. So that's on the Court Lindahl channel on YouTube. And then my blog, survivalcell.blogspot.com, has some other articles that aren't in the book and some other addendums to information I found after I published the book that you might enjoy. But really, I'm kind of taking it easy right now. I put out three books in the last two years, so I'm kind of just sitting back and researching and trying to do some things like I need to visit the Library of Congress to solve the Beale treasure Mm. (laughs) (laughs) that I'm going to try to do. And I think I'm going to wait a little bit longer to write the next book because I always publish my books too soon and then end up finding a great deal more afterwards. Mm. (laughs) so that's frustrating so i'm going to be a little more patient this time right right there's never an end to the learning process so get burnout sometimes you need to take a break and you know i'm spending more time with my wife and outdoors and everything Ah, well cheers to that yeah (laughs) well big thanks again for being here and for the copy of the book really enjoyed it plenty of mysteries in the world to unravel and i'm glad you're on the case take care man Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Greg. I'll always be listening to your show. It's very entertaining. It's one of the best ones out there. Sweet Arcadian Nights. Court Lindahl, good people of the internet. Court Lindahl returning to, quote, one of the best ones out there. (laughs) Kind words, seriously. And I have a ton of appreciation for the work Court does, too. He's very good at recognizing the strangeness in the stories, like the Inner Earth stuff, for example, and saying... Well, if you wanted to make a case for it, there's A, B, and C. I think it might be more of an overlay of myth, but hey, who knows? And that's really a fine approach for me. I really liked seeing this thread, too, of intelligence assets being involved in entertainment, hearing things like that post stuff was totally new to me. It's a certain time depth where we don't talk about those kind of agents, but it makes sense. The Oak Island stuff, too. And in a weird way, I feel better about the Hollow Earth. I think that's why Hollow Earth stuff is parsed out in books like Edadorfa. I think the goddamn Nazis knew about it. I think they went underground. And then, as I saw in some old black and white archival footage, a tribe was found in northern Brazil that was white-skinned, and they were referred to as the Akakor. They said their parents' generation were Germans who had escaped, and they were growing up underground. They said they wanted to see the surface world. So they emerged in Brazil and set up a small camp, then were later discovered by explorers. I think it makes sense. And I think it makes very little sense that life would only exist on the outside crust of this big, massive thing. Even if it is just tunnels and layers like the Moho layer, which is a sponge-like layer deeper down into the crust, it's about 20 miles down. So there's big openings there. I don't know, but I can make a lot of these pieces fit when I'm motivated enough. But this is just a fun show all around. Court's a good dude, doing really interesting and high-level work. He'll go down the weird roads, but he's got a basis for it. And he makes a really interesting point about someone like Laura Eisenhower, who I always thought was weird. She is on the conspiracy circuit, talking UFOs, has been for years. I sort of just dismissed her. But from the perspective of bloodlines and club members putting certain far-out narratives in the culture, maybe she's literally playing that same type of role, silly as it seems. 
We've considered more than once the different ways it seems that people were conditioned to feel about UFOs. Who knows what they really are or if there's even one answer, but manipulation was in play big time. Oak Island, though, really fun story, and we've never been able to get to it in such depth. If you only heard the first hour today, Lord Jesus, help them see the light. You need to sign up for THC+. You heard Court. This is one of the best ones out there. In today's second hour, on top of the 100 plus plus extra hours that you'd get just for signing up, we talked about the influence of the Bacon family on America, disinformation in alternative media, more mysteries revealed in the works of Poe, Mary Magdalene and sifting through the lore of the Merovingian bloodline, Court's thoughts on the Oak Island TV series and how they present the mystery, the Kensington Runestone and the Hudson Bay Company, H.P. Lovecraft, Mysteries of Early America, and Mormon history, just for good measure. An action-packed hour, no doubt. Five bucks a month, thehiresidechatsplus.com. Consider supporting the show. We're still banned from YouTube. Although I was on a Comedy Central Facebook live stream special. That's something to cross off the bucket list. The magic is working, people. Scribble those sigils and let's both will us towards our goals, eh? That said, I always appreciate you. I've got a plane to catch to Houston for the weekend, so I've got to get out of here. Getting together for a good old-fashioned guys trip. We're going to drink a little drink, smoke a little smoke, and tour NASA. And despite the oily appendages of the nefarious few, don't forget to take the time to crack open a cold one with the boys. Otherwise, what the hell are we doing here? (laughs) I've done my part. Your move, keepers of the Arcadian mysteries, entertainers of the inner circle, and treasure hunters the world over. Your fucking move. No one knows what it's like to be the bad man. Be the sad man Behind blue eyes And no one knows what it's like To be hated To be faded To telling only lies But my dreams Aren't as empty
Behind 